WTPN Pinellas Park. In light of the fact that everything our world holds dear, all those material things that we tend to treasure so much, they're going to be burned up. In light of that, how should you live? How should I live? In other words, Peter is exhorting us to live with eternity in mind. It's exactly what he's doing. We are not to become so attached to those things that are destined to be burned up. Instead, we're to live godly and holy lives. And essentially, it means that we are to live our lives to please Jesus Christ with commitment and dedication. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve has been serving at Lakeside since 1981, and now his practical messages are available over the air thanks to this fine radio station. We like to think of Verse by Verse as a radio Bible class of the air. Now today's class is the first part of a two-part message about the return of Jesus Christ. It's the fourth message in a series of six. We have a lot of ground to cover today as we dig into the third chapter of Second Peter. If you have your Bible ready, turn to verse 10 as Pastor Steve shares with us about the day of the Lord. Well, let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. We are continuing this morning with our study of 2 Peter, and we're going to pick it up right where we left off. I'd like to read to you the section of Scripture beginning with verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in all holy conduct and, and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. As you will recall, the emphasis of the third chapter of Second Peter is on the return of Christ. And the reason for that is because false teachers had come into the church, and these men were denying the return of Christ. And so Peter is answering that and, and, and protecting the believers who uh, were in danger of being swept into that thinking. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 4, he speaks about their denial. Notice this. Well, actually, chapter 3, verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. These men denied, and Peter tells us, even mocked the second coming of Jesus because of their aversion to judgment. Keep in mind, it wasn't the doctrine per se of Christ's return that bothered them. It was the fact that one of the reasons that Jesus is coming back is to execute judgments on those who have rebelled against him, those who have never trusted him. And uh, they understood that. And so they mocked the return of Christ, really mocking the thought of judgment. And the end of verse 3 opens up to us the motivation behind their mockery. This is very important. He says, following after their own lust. In other words, because they wanted to pursue illicit sexual pleasures, that's what he means by, by their lust. 
They wanted to pursue those illicit sexual pleasures without the consequences of having to, to face divine retribution. They just denied and, and mocked the promise of Christ coming to judge the world. They wanted to do their own thing without any thought of answering to God for their behavior. So they, uh, they simply laughed and mocked and scorned at the second coming of Christ. Instead of being honest about their motivation behind their mockery, they came up with a pseudo-philosophical reason for their denial of Christ's return. Peter tells us about this in verse 4. Here's what they said. Now understand, the reason was their, their lust, but here's what they said was the reason. They said, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They claim that ever since the beginning of time, nothing has ever interrupted the natural order of things. That was their argument. Nothing. So here's their reasoning. If if there's never been a catastrophic event in past history that interrupted the natural order of things, then certainly there's not going to be a catastrophic event of the magnitude of Christ's coming that's going to interrupt the flow of, of human history. That, that was their argument. It's never happened before, so it will not happen in the future. But in verses 5 through 7, Peter answers this philosophical argument because they were absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Verses 5 through 7, he says, For when they maintain this, when they hold to this, it escapes their notice. And, and really, his thought is it willfully escapes their notice. It's not that they're just ignorant. They choose to be ignorant. It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with Water, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, what does he mean here? He is stating that in the past, God has interrupted the natural order of things. God has broken in to, to history. He, he did it at creation. And I don't think that's really his emphasis, though it's mentioned here. God created the world out of nothing. God did break into uh it's probably not correct to call it human history, but God did break into the natural order of things. That's what he mentions, first of all. But secondly, and I think this is his emphasis, that God broke into human history at the time of the flood, when he sent a flood that wiped out everybody but Noah and his family. There was judgment. There was judgment by water. Never again to be like that, because remember, God promised Noah that he would never destroy the earth again by a flood. There are local floods, but never a universal flood. And that rainbow in the sky is a reminder to us of God's promise. But verse 7 says that though he will not destroy the world again by a flood of water, he will destroy the world again in a future judgment by fire. This present earth and heavens, he says, are being reserved for fire. So Peter has taken on the brunt of the false teacher's argument for denying Christ's return, and really he's answered it. He's biblically answered it. But he realizes that some of the, the believers here were still troubled about the return of Christ. Yes, he's dealt with the argument that the false teachers espoused, but he's, he's really trying to minister to these precious believers, most of them very new in the faith, and they were troubled. They were deeply troubled about the return of Christ. Why? What was it that was so troubling to them? They wondered, as you and I do at times, why has it taken Jesus so long to return? Where, where is he? I've gone through such horrors in life. Uh, our, our world has gone through such sinful horrors. 
where is Jesus Christ? And I told you sometime back that when Peter wrote this letter, it was 35 years after Jesus first promised to return. And these believers thought that he would return in their lifetime, and they were wondering about it. Now, it's been 2,000 years for us, and, and we wonder about it. Oh, these believers, like many of us, were growing impatient. They were beginning to wonder if Jesus was ever going to return. And so in verses 8 and 9, Peter explains why Christ hasn't returned yet. He will return, but why is he taking so long from our perspective? He gives us the first reason in verse 8. He says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice. So here's something we ought to observe. We ought to notice. Here's a fact. He says, beloved with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Basically, he's just saying God doesn't view time like we do. We think 2000 years is a long time. It's not. For God, it's like two days. And it's just a, an analogy. For God, it's like two days. And uh, being eternal, God has a completely different perspective on time. So from God's perspective, it's as if Jesus promised the day before yesterday that he'd come back. It's only been like two days. Like, it's like he promised it to us on Friday, and now it's only Sunday. So that's one reason. Don't be disturbed by the length of time because God doesn't view time like we do. Second reason, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any, and he means any of you, any believers, to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, what is he saying? This is so wonderful. He says, the reason that Christ hasn't returned yet is because God has been patiently waiting for his elect to come to faith and repentance. This is not a verse promising us or telling us that God's will is for everyone to be saved. That's not the case. What he is saying, and notice who he's addressing, he's addressing believers. He is patient toward you, believers. What he is saying is that God has chosen some who will believe. God has chosen some who will believe. We don't know who the elect are. When they come to faith, we know who they are, but God knows who they are, and he is patiently waiting in this day and age for his elect to come to faith in Christ. And he won't come back until all the elect are saved. That's his point. Now, now think about this. If he had returned 10 years ago in 1991, some of us would, right in this room would have been lost forever have never been saved. Some of you are recent believers. The last 10 years, five years, some just a few weeks, some a few months. Had Jesus returned before your salvation, you would have been lost forever. Once you die or once Christ returns, you don't have any second chance. So Christ in his patience and love is waiting to return until all the elect come to him for salvation. And they will. And that's a great encouragement to us. They will come. Now, this is where we left off in our study of 2 Peter. All of that has been really review. Peter has explained why Jesus has delayed his coming, if we can put it like that. It's not because of slowness. It's not because of slackness. He will come. But he won't delay forever. He will not delay forever. He will come again, and his coming will mean judgment. And so as Peter moves to verse 10, and we're going to move there too, he describes what this judgment will be like. Verse 10, let's, let's read it again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. 
Peter tells us that in the future, God will intervene once again in man's history, and he'll judge the world by destroying it with fire. And that's just what he said in verse 7. He's, he's really expanding on it. He's, he's clarifying it now. He's, he's making, remember, that contrast between fire that, will, that he'll use to judge this world with water that he has used. So he refers to this incident. I want you to notice verse 10. He refers to this incident. He calls it a name. He calls it the day of the Lord. That's important for you to understand. The day of the Lord was a popular expression used mostly by Old Testament prophets. It is mentioned in the New Testament, but it is primarily used by the Old Testament prophets to refer to a future time of God's judgment, direct judgment. That's what it means. However, it might be a little misleading when you read the term day of the Lord. You might think that that means one day. That's not the case. The day of the Lord is not one day. It's not even one event. It's a time period. It is a series of events in the unfolding of God's end time program that follows the rapture of the church. So it's not one day. It's a time period. It's not one event. It's a series of, of end times events that follow the rapture of the church when God will directly intervene in human history with judgment. The day of the Lord really begins as we put the Bible together, and this is just sort of a, a picture for you of what will happen in the future. The day of the Lord begins with a series of judgments known in, in the framework of the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 6 is where it begins. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, people will begin to wake up to the fact that God is dealing in judgment because they will cry out and they'll say the great day of their wrath, meaning the Father's wrath and the Son's wrath, has come. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 also calls the tribulation period the day of the Lord. That's where it begins. The church has been raptured, the church is out of here, and God begins to pour out judgment on the earth. The day of the Lord begins with that. That will last for seven years. There'll be a series of judgments, many judgments, three series of judgments, each, each making up seven individual judgments in those series. At the end of that seven-year tribulation period, Jesus will return, just as he promised. According to Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 14, his return will be to deliver Israel from her enemies. That's why it says he will, he will uh, place his feet on the Mount of Olives, the literal Mount of Olives, and he will deliver Israel from her enemies, and he will then judge those who have rebelled against him. This judgment also is referred to as the Day of the Lord. It's also called that. Now, following Christ's return, Jesus will then establish a literal, physical kingdom on earth, a kingdom which the Bible speaks of universal peace, and righteousness. It will last for a thousand years. That's why it's commonly referred to as the millennial kingdom, sometimes referred to as the messianic kingdom. It's what Jesus told believers to pray for, at least in one aspect, when we say thy kingdom come. There's an aspect in which when you accept Jesus Christ, the king has, has come into your life. That's true. But there is also a physical aspect that scripture, that scripture speaks about. In fact, in Revelation 20, it speaks about a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. The Old Testament prophets spoke of that. So, after he returns, he will establish that thousand-year reign on the earth. He'll reign out of the literal city of Jerusalem. But at the end of those thousand years, they will come to an end. At the end of his reign on earth, God will once again deal in judgment. He will deal in, in ultimate judgment with Satan. 
And uh, at that time, he will also deal with in judgment with all unbelievers. The final sentencing and final judgment is called the great white throne judgment. You can read about it in Revelation 20. And then he will destroy the physical universe with fire. And that's what Peter is talking about. You, you sort of needed to see all of that to see where Peter is coming from. That's the aspect of the day of the Lord that Peter is telling us about in verse 10. Now, with every judgmental aspect or, or event included in that time period of the day of the Lord, it will come like a thief, he says. Nobody prepares for a thief. A thief comes suddenly, a thief comes unexpectedly uh, with, with uh, disastrous results, usually for those who are unprepared. This judgment will come like a thief. People will not be prepared for it. Now, here's a question for us that we really need to address. There are several questions as we go through this, but one that you need to think about. Why does Peter pass over the actual return of Christ which will take place before the millennial kingdom and tell us about an event that will take place uh, 1,000 years after Jesus has come back. Most, um, most commentaries that I have read this last week and weeks prior to this um, don't even address that, but it should be addressed. He is not telling us about the actual return of Christ. He's telling us about something that will occur 1,000 years after Jesus comes back. Why does he just pass over that? It's important for you to understand. And I think that the answer is simply this. The context indicates that he is clarifying the judgment of fire that he spoke of in verse 7. It is not Peter's intention to give a detailed account of end times events. That's not his purpose here. He is not giving us uh, category after category. He, what he is doing in context is contrasting making a contrast between the world that was destroyed by water and the world that will be destroyed by fire in the future. His main point of concern here is judgment. And here's how he explains it. He says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. What does Peter mean by that? Peter's not talking about heavens in the sense of God's abode. He's talking about heavens in the sense of the physical universe will disappear with a roar. Very interesting, this word roar uh, was used in uh, in Greek literature to uh, to to really describe various noises made by by quick movements. For example, it's used to speak of a um, an arrow that goes whizzing by. It's used to describe the the sound of the rushing of mighty waters, many waters. It's also used to describe the the, the sound of the hissing of snakes. It is also used, and this is how Peter is using it, of the roar of a fire, the crackling sound of a fire when it's devouring something. That's how Peter is using it. Because he tells us this judgment involves the world being consumed and devoured by flames, that crackling roar. And that's why Peter goes on to say, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Intense heat. In other words, the physical structure of the universe, everything physical in our world, even the most basic of elements that you can break matter down to, will be burned up, going to be destroyed. And what will the result be? Notice, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, that's very interesting. The thought here seems to be that not only the, the earth, which is part of the physical universe, not only the earth will be affected by fire, but also the varied achievements of mankind. Why do I say that? Because Peter, this seems to be what Peter means by the expression, the earth, and then he adds, and its works. 
its works. In other words, its achievements. It isn't that, that just the planet is going up in smoke. It's man's achievements. Man's achievements. We'll talk more about that in a, in a few moments. I want you to notice the last phrase of verse 10. It says, in, in my translation, which I use the New American Standard Bible, it says, burned up. But most Bible scholars would tell us that that should be translated laid bare. And I think the NIV translates it that way or similar to that. In the sense of exposed, it's, it, there's a manuscript question as to uh, what was the original, what were the original words that Peter wrote? And did a scribe change it a little bit? Um, we're really not sure, but the best evidence seems to be that, that it should be laid bare. It really, either way, it does not change the, the meaning of this verse. In other words, when God destroys our world by, by that fire, all of man's great accomplishments, which are so highly esteemed now, they're going to be burned up and revealed for what they really are, and it's worthless. Worthless. Now, here's, here's the point, and here's something we have to grapple with. All the physical things that you and I see now, everything that you can see, the great, the great cities, the great buildings, architecture, great inventions, great technology, great, great cars and, and great boats, and, and you name it. We can go on and on with all the things that man is so proud of and man has accomplished. All of these things, Peter tells us, they're going to be burned up in a moment of time, just like that. And because this is what the future holds for our world, Peter goes on to make one of the most penetrating statements that uh, could be made and has been made in Scripture. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in, in this way, all the things that I named and, and lots more, since they're all going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness this really is not a question. It's really an exclamation. It's, it's a personal challenge. It's a personal challenge to us as believers in Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, you have to answer this in your own life, in your own mind, in light of the fact that everything our world holds dear, all those material things that we tend to treasure so much, they're going to be burned up in light of that. How should you live? How should I live? In other words, Peter is exhorting us to live with eternity in mind. It's exactly what he's doing. We are not to become so attached to those things that are destined to be burned up. Instead, we're to live godly and holy lives. And essentially, it means that we are to live our lives to please Jesus Christ with commitment and dedication. See, this puts a, a whole new perspective on things. You ought to look at things differently after you, you study this. Because we tend to treasure and put so much energy into preserving things. And they're all going to be burned up. All the things that you're going to see in the Super Bowl commercials, and after all, that's really why we watch the Super Bowl, to see those new million-dollar commercials, all the things that they're going to tell you that you need, Peter says, they're going to be burned up. They're going to be burned up. So don't get too attached to it. Now, Peter's not telling us that we shouldn't enjoy things. Peter's not telling us that we ought to live monastic lives and not have any property. He's not telling that at all. What he is saying is just don't become so attached to something that's going up with fire. It's not lasting forever. Knowing the events that Peter said are to come should have a great impact on where we place our priorities. Thank you for listening to Verse by Verse. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 
Since 1981, his practical, expository messages have edified the local congregation. And now, Verse by Verse Ministries makes these messages available to a wider audience through this radio Bible class. We are a faith ministry supported by the prayers and gifts of interested listeners who have first been faithful to their own local church. If you missed the start of class or would like to listen again, visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. You can listen online or download the program. For previous broadcasts, visit the archives page. That's versebyverseradio.org. Today's program is part one of a longer message. To hear Pastor Steve's entire message at one time, you can order an audio CD. Call us at 727 727- 4411714 Leave your name and a number and we will return your call during weekday office hours. The number again 7274411714. Please join us for our next verse by verse to learn what happens after the day of the Lord. We are here to give you strength between